Welcome to the Mega Blast Podcast. I'm your host, Jason McDonald. My goal is to get to the truth through conversation. The Mega Blast Podcast is produced by Arts and Opinion, an online journal housed at the Archives of Canada. Visit us at artsandopinion.com. I hope you enjoy today's guest. So, welcome, Mike Munger. How you doing? I'm just fine. It's great to be here, Jason. Thank you so much for uh, for coming on. Um, and well, before I get started, Happy St. Valentine's Day, and to you and yours. <laughs> yeah, uh, people are going to start to talk, right? If we uh, start start to meet like this, right? So, um, I, you know, uh, this is a. Um, a great, you know, this is a wonderful day for me because I've been a fan of yours for a long, long time. Um, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna flatter you here for a while. Um, I'm familiar with your work mostly through uh, the podcast you do with uh, Russ Roberts, your friend and colleague, and uh, you, you have the record on there of the highest number of podcasts on Econ Talk. Is that right? Sure, but that is only because whenever he isn't sure what he's going to do or doesn't have time to read a book, he has me on. And that happens really often. Okay. <laughs> so the, if, if he doesn't have time for a real guest, guest, he'll say, damn it, I'll get Munger. <laughs> okay. Well, it's, it's amazing. Cause I'm, I'm going to come back to that later, you know, um, to, cause one of those podcasts turned into a book, as far as I can tell, at least one, if not more. So whatever you guys are doing, it seems to be working. Or else I'm not very original. He has nothing to say. We talk about something, and then that's all I have to, to write about. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, one thing I wanted to say about those is that you two guys seem to be very well matched in the sense that you seem, you have um, a very kind of a powerful voice, and you're sort of a big extroverted person, you know. And, and I say that in a complimentary way, and I'm like that too. And and he's, you know, Russ is very, very calm and subdued. And I think it creates almost like a yin-yang balance. I don't know. Do you think that's true? Well, I'd like to think that it's true. He is, he often will start giggling because we have a lot of fun together. We've done it quite a few times. I was the second episode ever in 2006, and that was back before he took it very seriously um, he has built Econ Talk into something uh, interesting and important. A lot of the episodes get 100,000 listens. Um, on the other hand, some people have taken to calling it prostate talk lately, I have to admit, because there was quite a bit about, you know, doctors and dying. So uh, it, the, 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 the joke is that now it's an elderly Jewish man contemplating his own mortality. Yeah, well... Uh, history is replete with those. I mean, you know, there's some great, some of the greatest comedians, right? I mean, you Absolutely. got Mel Brooks and Larry David. I mean, that's kind of what they're doing now too, right? So yeah. he's in good company, right? Yeah, Mel Brooks had that skit, The Thousand-Year-Old Man. And right, <laughs> right, yeah. Okay, um, the objective of this podcast is to, I, I want to talk about what you do at Duke University as part of it. And later on, I want to really go into the sharing economy, which you've done a lot of work on. 
And um, I'm doing that with a class this session. I have an advanced language class and it's a business class. So we're doing a whole thing on the sharing economy. So I really wanted to get, I want to get to that a bit later, but you are at Duke University. And what's interesting to me is you're the director of philosophy, politics, and economics. So I think most people would say politics and economics, well, they obviously go together, you know, you you know, the, you elect a politician, he goes to Quebec City or whatever, and they, you know, they, they make a law on minimum wage or tax policy or something like that. And then they, they pass it and then that affects the economy and the economy is adjusted and so on. So you imagine Justin Trudeau or Francois Legault or some American governor or something like that doing these things. But when I think about philosophers, I have an image of Socrates or John Locke with his fountain pen talking about, you know, these philosophical concepts. And I can I can see a connection between philosophy and economics. But you have clearly got like you clearly um, are interested in how they connect. So how, how, how do they connect exactly? Well, philosophy, politics, and economics started in Oxford University in 1924-1925. They had a uh, curriculum which, with typical Commonwealth bravado, they called greats. Uh, it actually referred to the great works, so it was kind of a classic books curriculum. And it was determined that that was insufficient to create a cadre of people who could run an empire. And they decided that they would introduce a new curriculum, which was a selection of courses from philosophy, politics, and economics. If integration were to take place, it would take place in the minds of the students. The faculty just taught their own courses. Uh, the result was that there was maybe unexpectedly, they had hoped, but maybe unexpectedly, there was a synergy among those three, and it proved useful for creating potential leaders. Now, some people say that PPE is the ultimate blaggers degree, and I should translate that from English into English. A blagger is someone who can speak with great authority on any subject for 30 seconds. That sounds like an insult, but in fact, that is something that a liberal arts education produces. I know where everything goes. So if I have a 20-minute meeting with a consultant about a scientific problem, and then I talk to some people who are working in a not very wealthy neighborhood in Toronto to try to improve education or a tax system where I'm worried about equity. I need to be able to talk about the connections among different two of those three. So almost everything that politicians do involves some two of the three, the P, the P, and the E. And obviously, there's multiple ways you can connect that. Now, you might say that there's other interdisciplinary studies that would also be good. That's true. This is not the only interdisciplinary study out there, but it is something that has proved the test of time for leadership because it creates people who recognize the difficulties and the tensions among these different ways of approaching problems. That's really fascinating. So it has its origins in uh, the British Empire and in you know sort of a worldwide 
um, you know, um, it, it sounds like you're saying it creates a, a people who are generalists, that they can have a kind of global view. Is that one way it, to think about that, it? That, that's right. But what I worry about is that without careful thought, something like PPE could produce people confused in three disciplines. Yeah. You want to have sufficient depth in one or two of them. The traditional majors exist for a reason. So there's always a tension between someone who knows a little bit about a lot of things and someone who actually understands something, but then goes to the trouble of problematizing that because can, then you have to confront the way that people in other disciplines also do those things and maybe do them differently. Yeah, that's that's wow. That's uh, that's interesting. So that's kind of the technical uh, background within the university system. I, I I sort of look at it and I think when I think about economics, you know, I'm, I'm I've, you know I've read tried to read books by people like Adam Smith and stuff like that. It seems to me that economists, if they're really thinking clearly, should be thinking about why. Like what leads to a good life other than just, you know, satisfying, you know, hungers and things like that, right? So I, do you think there's some sort of a connection there? I mean, Russ Roberts talks a lot about this, right? Like, you know, what's a moral, you know, so I, do you have any thoughts about the morality connecting to economics? Sure. And um, let me say that what you just said is spoken like a wealthy person. Okay. Yeah, if you're if you're a poor yeah. person, increases in prosperity are really your main concern. If I can get a motorcycle, a refrigerator, and a washing machine, I'll be a lot better off. If you want to talk about equity and philosophy, we'll talk about it then. Now, for a society, yes, those are legitimate concerns, and that's why PPE problematizes some of the the things that economists do. But if I'm a doctor working on a particular disease, it's okay for me to specialize. Economists work on a particular disease called poverty. And we have discovered that there are some things that seem to lead out of poverty better than some other systems. And that was one of the things that Adam Smith was talking about in The Wealth of Nations. Poverty is the universal human condition. It's what happens when things are broken. In order to get prosperity, you need to have a system, Adam Smith said, that elaborates division of labor. So if we have a system that elaborates division of labor, it's going to create some subsidiary, secondary problems. But that's like treating side effects of an effective medication. First thing we need to get for most people, most of the world, is an increase in prosperity. And that actually has happened. In the last hundred years, the, the proportion of people in desperate poverty has fallen from 80% to less than 10%, you know, controlling for purchasing power. Yeah. It is it is an enormous achievement. Now, that doesn't mean that there's no more problems, but let's not minimize that achievement. That's very significant. Now we need to worry about the side effects. Yeah, I mean, it's it's it, most most many people seem to put around 1870 as kind of one of the beginning times. But if you look even in this century from the year 2000 up to now, it's astonishing how many people have been you know come up out of the absolute penury of you know living on if you what is the bottom or it's around a dollar 35 us per day or something is considered but the, the, right? I, I, a lot of people now use something like two dollars and five cents per person per day and if you start at 1950 
the, the big change has been in China and India. That's where most yeah. of the population of the world is. And there's been just an enormous decline. Um, now, maybe you can say $3 a day per person is not enough. That's easy for me to say. If I went from $1.75 to $3.20 per day, what an enormous difference in the quality of my life. Yeah, I, I think people really under underestimate this. I, I I feel a bit embarrassed that I sounded like a person who wasn't because I, I often harp about this in class, how important it is that you were you're you know, a skilled interviewer and you were asking a question to elicit a response you expected. So that's fair enough. No one's right. confused. Yeah, um, because it's, it's so in other words, just to specify to repeat what you said a minute ago, sometimes people say um poverty needs no explanation. Because poverty is just the natural state of human beings, because human beings, we struggle against storms and, you know, bad, you know, bad, you know, not enough food and so on and so forth in our natural lack of trust, crime, lack of war. trust, war, fighting uh, animals that can kill us, whatever it is, diseases, bacterias. I mean, you name it, they're trying to kill us. Right. So what needs an explanation is how can we get out of that to where we can be protected and insured in some senses from those things and wealth does that that is to to to, to increase wealth you also said that that certain systems produce better results right than others and that seems kind of obvious um i like to use examples in my classes of what are called natural experiments right so one i use is a shopping center in california where on one side, the minimum wage went up by $2, and on the other, you may have heard of this, and it's it's a famous case. And the other two obvious ones I talk about in class are what regarding what you were saying, you know, South Korea and North Korea and East Germany and West Germany, where you take the same, more or less the same culture of people, you just split them up and see what, here's one economic system, economic and philosophical system, and here's another one. And it seems obvious that communism resulted in worse results if you're concerned about um, rising wealth and more human freedom for individuals. Yes. Yeah. So I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? Or, Well, communism is not actually a viable system over time because it communism has never been successfully tried at scale both of the systems that you mentioned are were actually socialist so there were centralized authority that were making attempts at planning an economy and in the absence of price information it is very difficult for central authorities to make judgment about the relative value of resources it means a lot of resources get wasted they don't get used very well and so even a lot of what should be the wealth that those societies have is not used very effectively and so the, it, it turns out that socialist systems, the countries that have tried to use socialist systems either have just ended up in abject poverty or turned away from it. And so the two things that I always make, two points that I make to my students, Sweden, Norway, uh, Denmark are among the world's most capitalist countries. They went along more or less socialist, a lot of state-owned enterprises, and somewhere between 1991 and 1993, they looked over the precipice and said, we're not making enough surplus to finance the welfare states that we would like to be able to provide. And so all of them turned sharply in the direction of capitalism. And famously in 2016, when Bernie Sanders was talking about socialism, 
and uh, Denmark, how he wanted to be socialist like Denmark. The, the Danish prime minister publicly admonished Bernie Sanders and said, we're a capitalist country. I don't know where you're getting this. I mean, we're a democracy, and it happens that we vote for a welfare state. But it, the, our economic system is heavily capitalist. Second point I make to my students, and they're surprised because they think those countries are socialist. Well, it may have been when their dotard professors were educated, but since 1993, they've sold off all their state-owned enterprises. The, the second point that I make is that I ask students, consider workers from the wealthiest to the poorest in the world. Now, suppose that you are a minimum wage worker in the United States. Where are you in terms of percentile? And the answer is 94th percentile. There's only 6% of people in the world who are wealthier than a minimum wage worker in the United States, which explains why if we're considering building a wall, it's not to prevent people from escaping like in East Germany or in North Korea. We're, if, if US is going to build a wall, it's because it's very difficult to handle all the immigrants who want to be poor in the United States instead of middle-class in their home countries. And it, I think it is difficult for students to reconcile their notion that somehow the inequalities of income in the United States and being poor in the United States are so awful with the fact that being poor in the United States is actually pretty great. And let me, if you have mental illness, you have health problems, that's all fine. But just straight up, if you're able to participate in the economic system, you live in a wonderland. Yeah, the people, very, I think this is very poorly understood. It's got to do with productivity. So every Canadian or American or French or Danish worker is much more productive than every Congolese or Burmese or Brazilian, even, even Latin America is sort of in, in between. So what that means is if you're making minimum wage in Quebec, it's $15.25 Canadian per hour. If you can save 20% of that, that's actually going to aggregate up to a fair amount of money that you can, and, and the cost of other things like television sets or cars is pretty much the same across the world. Like it doesn't really change, right? So if you're making $500 a year in the Congo, you, if you're going to buy a car, it's still going to cost $10,000. So, you know, if you're making $500 a month in Canada, that, that's literally 10 times, right? So yeah. I think people, it's it, there's a lot of wonky numbers here, but I think many young people, they confuse a difference between the person at the bottom in Canada and the person at the top in Canada versus looking across space where the context is completely different. Is that one way to restate it? Is that Sure. And it, it is also true that in many of those poor countries, some of them have quite a bit of inequality, but a lot of them don't have that much inequality because everybody's poor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I want to emphasize that I think that the problem is not inequality. The problem is poverty. Now, yeah. solving the problem of poverty may create inequality. And if that bothers you, you're probably rich. Yeah. Because again, yeah. poor people, if you actually get out a little bit and talk to poor people, what they would like is to have a little more for themselves and for their families, a little more sense of security. So the reason that people make a desperate effort to get to Canada, to get to the United States and to, to get asylum, sometimes from political persecution, but sometimes just from economic hardship. It's, it's perfectly understandable. Inequality is a price we ought to be willing to pay unless you want to instantiate the sin of envy mm. as a yeah. moral good. 
Now, the, I, th I think a lot of what mass, th there are concerns about social, social justice that are fair enough. But envy is a sin. It's not a motivation for justice. That's that's a very fascinating way to put it because it it it, it sort of slides us right into philosophy, right? Because you, you mentioned envy. If I, what's the difference between you know, is it jealousy versus envy? If I'm if I'm jealous of a person with a really nice car, I I sort of think, wow, that guy's got a great car, you know. Uh, so I'm jealous of him. In other words, I want the car. I I, I want to maybe I work hard, you know. Uh, Whereas if I'm envious, I would rather smash the car to smithereens and that he not have the car because because I want him to be as poor as me, it right? Makes Which me is feel what bad. Yeah, I mean, like, I feel bad to see these tall buildings and nice cars. And I would feel better if they were denied that, even if I, my situation were not improved. That's right. That's a, that's a terrible way to think about it. It's morally offensive. And it's it's kind of what really, like when I think about when you mentioned earlier that poorer societies are more equal, the, you know, people often talk about Cuba, right? As sort of, the, oh, the great healthcare. You know, Cuba is less unequal now than it was in 1958. In other words, there's less of a difference between the rich and the poor because there's just more general poverty. Yes. And so one problem is Cubans are now much poorer than Dominicans or Mexicans or, you know, other people around, you know, putting Venezuela to the side for a minute that's collapsed into for a different reason. Um, but it's, you know, this this is very confusing to people. But I wanted to say, too, your words are probably going to resonate with a lot of my students who are going to be listening to this, because at least half of our students um, have origins. They're native born uh, Quebecois Canadians, but at least half of them have origins or are immigrants from places like Haiti, uh, Latin American countries, North Africa, where they 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 understand. You know, they go back and visit their grandparents in Morocco or something, and they see countries that are. You know, this is. I I, I want to make clear that um you know that I'm not making um, um any sort of generalized statement about the human beings in those in 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 developing countries. It's not a statement about the quality of the people it's just people in developing countries are often suffering that poverty is one way to state it right well and one of the big reasons for the persistence of poverty is the absence of property rights and the inability of people to find ways to serve each other so one of the things that i think if you haven't been i've spent a fair amount of time in cuba um if, if you go to cuba to africa to a nation where there is quite a bit of poverty. It's not that there's no entrepreneurship. Everybody's an entrepreneur. Everybody's an entrepreneur. Everybody has a yeah. side hustle. <laughs> so the, the professors at Universidad de Habana in, <laughs> in Cuba when I was there, they drove taxis on the yeah. weekend because right, they yeah. made so little money. So the, the, there's no shortage of entrepreneurship. There's no shortage of human energy and creativity. What there is, is an incapacity to translate that energy into some, a way that I can serve other people and get rewarded for it. Yeah. And that's that, the that's, obstacle. Yeah. Well, the obstacle is cr usually created by some sort of intervention from above, which is to say a government or also another problem, because that's in Cuba, you've got a socialist system, which is intervening to, you know, to, to express it. Another problem in many African countries, I think, is that there's not enough security as in police and courts that can mediate when people have disputes with each other to protect the property. And, and then that, you know, that creates a system where people need guns. My, you know, my ex-wife was Dominican and 
you know, people in the Dominican Republic, they have guns in their houses because, you know, someone can break in and steal stuff. So you want to be able to shoot them. There's, and you can't call the police at night and things like that. So that that has an almost an equally problematic effect, which is to say the first thing the government should be doing is trying to secure the property rights, not just for the rich people, but for the people down the line in, you know, in poor neighborhoods as well, who own, should be able to own their own property, right? Sure. And the, the, the one of the characteristics of poverty is not just lack of resources, but insecurity of the resources that one does have. Right. And yeah. that combination of insecurity and lack of resources is it, it, it means you're stuck. There's nothing that you can do. There's no way out. It's not like I can try to save stuff because it's probably going to be stolen. Yeah. Um, it's not like I can build a restaurant because I won't have property right to the land. Uh, government officials will come around and say, hey, this is a nice restaurant. It would be a shame if something was to happen to it. I think you need to pay me another $100 a month to make sure that nothing happens to it. So it's government officials themselves that are subjecting people to the classic protection racket. Yeah, and it, there's some there's some interesting cases on this recently. I'm, I'm sure you're probably following what's happening in El Salvador, where they had it wasn't the government; it was kind of mafia people that were you know extortion rackets that had gone wild. And now there's a sort of I suppose he's a strong man is one way to f- characterize this Bukele guy. I think yeah. is his name who's intervened, and it it seems to be working. I'm I'm a little hesitant because I, you know, I'm, I'm very suspicious of government power generally. So I worry what could happen later on. On the other hand, it was it was so difficult in that country just to, you know, bus drivers had to pay la renta. You know, the guy would come on every week and collect half of what you, you collected from the people. And, you know, if you didn't, they'd be breaking your legs and stuff. Yep. So... I don't know. Is that a, is that something that could for places that are unstable is just to have a kind of imposition of authority that's going to really come in and 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 um, suppress elements that would steal from people? And oh, in, is that Thomas Hobbes was not wrong that the the state of the war of all against all and insecurity of property is impoverishing. And that having a centralized, strong government that prevents that is better. I would hope that there's a third alternative. But if those are your only two choices, yes, a strong centralized government is better than chaos and widespread corruption. So the sometimes people point to Singapore uh, on, on those grounds. Singapore was quite corrupt, relatively poor. Uh, puts a strongman dictator in place. It happened that this that the the dictator was pretty pro market and pro open economy. And Singapore, of course, is well placed. This beautiful natural harbor. It's an entrepot for all sorts of of shipment, uh, and they became wealthy. But that doesn't mean that every country should say, "And all right, what we need is a strong dictator." Singapore got lucky. And they had a Singapore who they had a uh, dictator who wanted things that actually did produce public goods. It's not clear that you won't become Venezuela if you get a bad dictator. So that that's not really a way out. I, I'm afraid we're stuck with some sort of liberalism and some sort of constitutional republic as the way out of poverty. Even though that's a political system, as long as you have a, a, a 
constitutional republic and a capitalist market system, every country that has successfully implemented that has become wealthy, without exception. Provided they've done the democracy thing repeatedly enough that it doesn't become a way that you can vote for people to pay you. That's even a problem in our system, right? You have to have repeated elections where, and and also another thing I think that's important is a, is a Chinese wall between the civil service and the uh the elections. I mean, you, you know, many countries, democracy have some, not many countries, but sometimes it can devolve into a system where vote for me and I'll give you stuff. Kind yeah. Of, well, right? Ar Argentina and India both have democracy without constitutional protections for property. So I, I was careful to say a yeah. constitutional <laughs> republic. So a constitutional yeah. republic with protections against majority power. Because it is the protections against majority power that make for the possibility of prosperity. And you can see in Argentina and India, two great, powerful countries that have just systematically gutted themselves by making a series of majoritarian promises. Vote for me and you'll fart through silk in no time. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's a secondary problem, which is perhaps um, harder to deal with, which is um, uh, the ethnic problem, where, where you have ethnic groups that can group with that. Okay, um, I want to transition a little bit into um, uh, the, the sharing economy, uh, which you've, the sharing economy is part of the reason that, um, that you and I were brought together. I may have mentioned this to you in an email, but I drive Uber on the side and I picked up uh, this guy who was, a, he's a, a French Canadian economist called Vincent Gelozo. And, you know, we became friends after the Uber ride and so on. And, uh, and that was how I was connected to you, in fact. Um, so that's kind of a benefit. But this, the sharing economy, I'm, I'm finding it interesting with my students because it seems obvious to me what it is. That it's kind of a um, it, well, it seems obvious what it is, but I think a lot of people don't see the line between, you know, business, business, and individuals um, uh, using a dead asset, right? So, so I mean, if we just define the sharing economy quickly, it's I have a car and I drive my car twice a week, and the other days I don't need it, so I put it up on Turo and I rent it out. Right. If Turo didn't exist, my car would be what is known as a dead asset. It would just sit there and wait for me to use it. I have a condo. I have a room in the back with a bed that my, you know, my friend comes once a year and stays there. I and, and it's a dead asset. It sits there. It, it's worth zero dollars. And then with Airbnb, I put it up and I can rent it out for fifty bucks when people want to come and see the Canadians play, you know, the New York Rangers or whatever from out of town. What's interesting I've found in my classes is, you know, when I ask them the question about what what some of the other things people could, um, you know, could could do, which is what your book is about, they they were coming up with things like tuxedos and things that are sort of traditional businesses, and I'm I'm not sure why this is. I mean, is it people have trouble seeing how dead assets by individuals is different from what a business might do, like Avis or Hertz or a hotel? I'm just, I don't know. It's not really a very clear question, but I'm, I'm just a bit surprised how how obvious it seems to me and how maybe it's not as obvious as I thought. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I have a lot of thoughts on that, as you might expect. 
the sharing economy is a combination of two separate things and you have to disentangle them. That's why I think a lot of people are confused. One of them is the reduction in transaction costs. So we're able to use apps on phones and other digital uh, communication devices to reduce the transaction cost of finding each other. And the three kinds of transaction costs that matter are triangulation, transfer, and trust. We have to be able to find each other. We have to be able to deliver the good or service, make the payment, and we have to rely on each other's assurances. The second is the commodification of excess capacity. There's all sorts of things that we have that are being underused. For the most part, we think of those as something we would pay to store. So uh, students at Duke, for example, uh, over the summer, they have a bicycle, they'll pay $20 a month to store it. Suppose that instead they had some reliable means of renting it out and they rented it out for $5 a month over the summer. Well, they're actually making $25 a month, the $20 per month that they would pay to store it that they don't have to pay and the $5 per month that they get as revenue. So that's a big difference. And that bicycle is now being used. So we have plenty of stuff. It's just in the wrong place. What people are confused about is they think that Uber sells taxi rides. They think that they think that Airbnb sells uh, hotel rooms. That's not true. What those companies sell is connections. There are plenty of people that have a car in a few minutes, and there are plenty of people who want to ride. Now, I have a black BMW 330. I'm just the sort of asshat you think I am coming up behind you, flashing my lights. But Let's, let, let's say I pull up beside a young woman walking by the side of the road, roll down my window in my black BMW and say, hey, you want to ride? <laughs> no, no, she does not. That is really creepy. But the fact is that that transaction takes place all the time. All the time. In yeah. the context of an app where you can solve the, it's not creepy. I can actually say where I want to go. We can negotiate a price. We can make the payment and it's all seamless. So if we reduce the transactions cost, there's a bunch of mutually beneficial tra transactions that can now take place. So you should think of transaction cost as friction. So in an engine, friction makes the engine run hot, but it dissipates the energy into heat rather than actually delivering energy. So if, if we can provide some sort of reduction in friction by reducing those transactions costs, all sorts of things now become possible. So there, there's a lot of ways that companies like Uber can enable the the better use of cars the example that you gave is a terrific one about renting your car i fly almost every week so let's suppose that i fly into montreal airport and i walk past uh several big parking garages full of cars with no one in them in order to get to the hertz counter so that i can rent a car why don't we rent out those cars instead of storing them in parking garages? Well, the answer is the transactions cost of doing that are too high. It's creepy. I don't want somebody in my car. Well, what if an app could reduce the cost of triangulation, transfer, and trust? I'm paying, I think in Montreal, it's $40 Canadian yeah. per day to it's park. Expensive. It's pretty expensive. Yeah. So if I could rent my car out for $40 a day, I'd be making $80 a day. And then it's there when I get back, that's much better than paying $40 a day. So I think people, generations from now will look back and say, not only were these people greedy, they were dumb because they had these income producing assets. And instead of renting them out and letting other people use them, because that means that I can get 
a good quality car at a lower price, and we're, we have, we have, we store things a lot less. If I'm driving in New York City, there's a bunch of three lane roads in New York City. Two lanes of them are full of cars that are empty. Yeah. Think how much more traffic we could have on New York streets if it, we didn't mostly use the roads to store empty cars. Parking is a stupid idea. That's mm -hmm. not something that you should do in high value real estate. We only do it because we're not used to thinking about commodifying excess capacity. There's a an app in Europe. It, it doesn't exist in Canada or the U.S., but it's called Blah Blah Car. And Blah Blah Car is, and, and if, if I'm in uh, uh, Czech Republic or uh, some part of Central Europe, people would probably use this to get to class. I can rent, it's hitchhiking. I can rent a, a truck. So if I'm in Brno, I want to go to Prague tomorrow morning um, at nine o'clock, and I have to say how much I want to talk. And the three categories are blah, which means I don't like to talk very much, blah, blah, which means I enjoy a natter, or blah, 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 which means I rarely pause speaking even for breath. So I can be matched with a good conversational partner tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. and go from Brno to Prague for 10 euros. Mm, it costs a hundred on the train. And yeah. that truck is going anyway. That's just that that front seat is going to be empty. Mm -hmm. That person is in, a, in an Uber. You only go there because they say, I want to go here. This truck is going anyway. It's a mm -hmm. pure saving. So yeah. the, if we start thinking about commodifying excess capacity and recognizing that it's the reduction in transaction costs that make that possible, we have enough stuff. There can be an enormous increase in effective wealth because people will be able to share rather than own. I have, I'm embarrassed to admit, a riding lawnmower. So does my neighbor. Why? <laughs> How stupid is that? Once yeah. a week for 40 minutes, my big butt sits on this riding lawnmower <laughs> and then I put it in a shed and he does the same thing. Why don't we share? Well, transactions cost are high, but if there were an app, five of us should be able to share this a very high quality riding lawnmower. And yeah. so the, the, if we can commodify excess capacity, we can change the world. We have enough stuff. Yeah, I, um, in my class yesterday, when I some of them were really getting it, and some of the ideas, two ideas that were very good. One was um, Tesla chargers. Like, what about you know? It's like I mean, it's expensive to put one in. If there's one guy on the block who has one, he can rent it out to a bunch of people, and it can be being used uh, frequently. The other was pools. Somebody said, "What about pools?" And I was like, "Wow, that makes sense." I mean, you have one one person in the neighborhood has a pool, and he uses it once a week, and the other days he can, you know. So I I also think that a lot of the growth we've seen over the past, well, not a lot, but some of the growth we've seen is partly this opening up of dead assets. I, I don't know. I wonder if an economist has ever done a study to try and figure out how much of the growth we've seen is because of Uber and Airbnb and Lyft. And I don't know. Do you know anything about that? Well, I think there are some people that are doing studies, but notice that there are two effects. Um, we will need less stuff. So manufacturing jobs are like... Go ahead. Manufacturing jobs are likely to decline. We will need less stuff. Uh, prices may very well fall in the sense I'll be able to rent rather than own. It means that wages are likely to fall, but economists have a measure for this called real prices. So if, if prices fall by more than wages, your effective wage has increased. And for people that are in that position, the new world will be a great place. 
However, if you don't really have access to some sort of income producing asset, then it might be that you can't really take advantage of this. One income producing asset might be the ability to write code, or you can learn how to write code using chat GPT. You can have a car, you can have a room, you could own some tools that you rent out. So the, we may see a return to the what used to be in many economies, uh, people would share things in local communities and that would be how they survive. So you probably can get by with less, but you still have to have some sort of income. Price can't fall enough to make people be able to survive if they have zero wages. And so I, I think that there is going to be an increase in the sense of economic precariousness because manufacturing jobs are just going to fall. Through. They've already fallen a lot because of increases in productivity. But manufacturing jobs and 40-hour-a-week jobs for working-class people are going to fall even more. There'll be a lot of service jobs left, but that's pretty frustrating. There's no opportunity for increases in productivity and uh, promotion. Yes, yeah, the service sector has really become the new working class, I think, in, in, in this century as opposed to the previous century. It's, uh, yeah, the other thing that strikes me about that is you know, there's definitely some challenges there, but it, it's amazing how smart people are. Like most people know what I used you, the preface to your book and, and the story about how these two genius architects were, were going to you know, uh, they're, they're going to plan the perfect paths into this university. And then they thought, why don't we just see what people do? And then people, yeah. neither of the planners had had been able to know what was the best way. Right. So it, how could you? you how could you know? Right. <laughs> so it strikes me that as this challenge arises of what are people going to do? There's just, you know, people coming up 14, 15 years old are going to be doing things and they're going to find some way to do things that are, you know, that we can, that you and I can't possibly even imagine, right? That, that you know, yeah. and there's going to be things that are invented that we can't even, you know, imagine what they are. And there's going to be new sectors of the world the same way, um, you know, Russ Roberts talks a lot, you know, if you go back to you know, 100 years ago. Almost half of Canadians and Americans worked in agriculture right now. The, what is that now? Two and a half percent. So it's dropped by, you know, many magnitudes. And, and, we, and we produce more food. And we produce more food. And so if and Russ often says there, if you had gone and asked a farmer like, well, what, you know, there's only going to be two percent of you instead of they would have said things like, well, where's all the food going to come from? What are people going to do? There's going to yeah. be unemployment by, you know, mass. And so this is why when I hear people like Andrew Yang talking about how, you know, self-driving trucks is going to be this cascade of problems because there's all these truck drivers are not going to be at work and then all the restaurants they go to are not going to function. I think, I don't know. That's That sounds exactly like the analysis of the farms a hundred years ago, but I don't know. It sounds like we're ending on some positivity. Did you have any thoughts about that? Or I, I would end on some positivity. People have always found ways to improve their lives as a result of being able to get goods and services that were better and cheaper. Yeah. And so people are creative. They will find new ways to work. And there's a famous example when automatic teller machines were first introduced, it was assumed that this would be a big decline in banking employment. Actually, what it did was made it so much cheaper to open a branch that a lot of banks opened more branches, but now the human being specialized in, you know, problem checks, opening new accounts. So what, what it meant was that the employment in the banking industry actually went up 
prices wow. fell wow. and more people participated as a result of the technological change. So the sometimes change will displace workers, but more often what it does is enable workers. So you get technology working with human beings and that's that's more productive than either of those working alone. So that has been the history of the last hundred years is finding ways to make machines and technology as a kind of force multiplier so that each worker produces more. And since that's true, we can have more and more workers that are producing things that until now were too expensive even to contemplate. So I am very optimistic about that. I think your story is really fascinating because you take that bank teller who was sitting there in 1975, just taking the check and doing that. And you put him or her like get, you know, maybe they need some education or training into an office and doing things like mortgages and loans. You yes. raise their productivity. You have they're, they're doing something more important in the economy grows, and they're doing something more interesting. At yep. least I think it's more interesting. It's absolutely more interesting. Yeah. they're making twice as much money. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So just on on the finance on on, on the income side, but also There's no downside. Everything about that was good. Yeah. Yeah, and and um and, and it means that opening up these things, this is people need it. It does mean that actual brain power and IQ and intelligence becomes more important. So this is perhaps a, a challenge that uh, that's absolutely have time to talk about. But. People need to feel included, and they have to have a sense of hope. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um. So may a, may, a, may I suggest that? Go ahead. Not not everyone has uh may, may know that they have access. So my book on the sharing economy is available for free as a free PDF download from the Institute for Economic Analysis okay. in London. So if you just look for Munger, Sharing Economy, and IEA, you can get a free copy of this wonderful book. Okay, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, send that to my students right away um, because we we already did the preface. Uh, that was yeah. something uh, we read the preface and we did that in class. We're doing it this week. Um, listen, I, I, I just want to say uh, again, thank you so much, Mike. It's, uh, this is, this, this talk has been a real pleasure. Um, I, I feel like we just scratched the surface. I, I don't know if, uh, if you're interested well, in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Let, let's do it again in a few months. Okay. Listen, thank you again. All right. And I apologize for the technical glitch. A little while. <laughs> it, 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 it bound, it's bound to happen. I am, um, podcast promiscuous and so I, I i i have often encountered such difficulties and it, okay. it, that's just fine thanks mike yeah All right, see you yeah Thank you for listening to today's guest on the Mega Blast Podcast. I've been your host, Jason McDonald. This podcast is brought to you by Arts and Opinion, an online journal, which is also available in the permanent archives of Canada. Visit us online at artsandopinion.com. 